Ari Rosenbaum here with another fun-filled episode of that topic to talk about. It's the 401k plan sponsor's job just because, which, um, you know, I, always reminds me of uh, Sesame Street, which I'll, I'll talk about. And, um, of course, first things first, that 401ksite.com, further information on all the live events. Oakland has been officially canceled just not a lot of people interested in going to Oakland. Um, not a lot of sponsorship interest. And rather than have an event with, you know, two attendees and, you know, two sponsor, uh, two plan provider sponsors, we've decided to forego with that event. Detroit's still up there on the board on May the 3rd. But go to that 4 to sign up. Uh, actually, go to... Um, when you get an email from me, uh, go to the link for that national 401k virtual conference next January for a limited time. It's free to be a part of it. And within the next couple weeks, we'll talk about, uh, the plans for that 401k virtual plan sponsor conference. I think that's going to be the name of it. Um, and, and we're going to go ahead with a plan sponsor event. And this will be the first time I've gone with a plan sponsor event since 2019. 2019 in St. Petersburg, Florida, we tried a back-to-back uh, -back days. We had a, that 4K conference, and then that 4K plan sponsor forum was called. It was the only time that we did it. For a lot of reasons, the attendance wasn't where I wanted it to be. So therefore, we, we went without it. And uh, I'm going to try a virtual event, which I think is going to be easier to get plant sponsors and whatnot. And obviously with a national scope, uh, Zoom, you can obviously do a lot more. Probably going to target it for the first Friday in October. Um, Jewish holidays are always getting in the way. Um, I want to say Rosh Hashanah is... Somewhere of a Saturday, Sunday this year, maybe. Um, I want to say it's the 16th and 17th. I could be wrong. Don't, don't hold me to it. And uh, we just want to avoid that. Um, and, and, and whatnot. Of course. Uh, and I actually, I'll have to look at school, make sure we don't uh, schedule it for Sukkot. Uh, that, would not, that would not certainly not be good for, uh, for me, as well as the attendance. Uh, for a lot of people. But uh, let's go to the topic at hand. And uh, Sesame Street is a show that is very, very close to my heart for a variety of reasons. Number one, it was a show that I grew up as a kid watching in the 70s. And um, my wife was watched that show and my son Jason, who's 17 now, was the biggest Elmo fan in the world. I mean, he had a crib, and he he slept in the crib with three different Elmos. Uh, two of the same size, and one that was smaller, and he would take Elmo everywhere. Um, in the car, he took it for his first haircut. And it's a show that's always been near and dear to my heart. My daughter watched it, not as big as a fan, uh, for me, my favorite character is Cookie Monster. Uh, my wife is his favorite character is Bert. Uh, huge Bert fan. She's got like every Bert shirt there's imaginable on that you know I could find on Amazon.com. Anytime there was like you know 
Valentine's Day or her birthday, whatever, I'd make sure to, you know, there'd be like a Bert memento in there. I think for Hanukkah, whatever, I found her a Bert who's dressed up as like a, a handyman or a contractor. He's got like a little hammer and all that stuff. But uh, like I said, uh, Sesame Street is near and dear to my heart. And uh, one of the most iconic uh, episodes um, of Sesame Street was when, after the actor Will Lee died in 1981, I think about a year later, they did an episode where Mr. Hooper, um, you know, they come out and say that he died. And, you know, Big Bird doesn't take too well to it. And the answer is that, uh, you know, this is the way it has to be, you know, just because. And it was really simple. And, and I always watch that bit and, you know, the episode obviously aired when I was 10, so I was no longer watching Sesame Street. But, you know, watching it, you know, every now and then on, on YouTube, I'm always taken back by, obviously, the emotion when, when, you know, obviously these a lot of these actors were on the show with Will Lee for, for 10 years. Bob McGrath was on the show for, for 10 years. And ever since the beginning, actually it was 10, 12 years or whatever they worked with him. And when you hear Bob talk about it, you know, in that episode, you could hear his voice like crack with emotion. And obviously it meant something to him. And I want to say in 2019, um, we went, my daughter and I went to a Comic-Con called the Eternal Con in uh, the Nassau, uh, Nassau Coliseum. And I had to go because I mean it, it it was it was hilarious because uh, they've done subsequent you know uh, events there, but nothing quite like um, you know uh, it was amazing how many iconic people I got to meet that day. So there was a whole Sesame Street contingent, uh, and a lot of them have passed on. Carol Spinney was there. Uh, obviously he was the voice of Oscar the Grouch. He was Big Bird. Uh, he, he couldn't talk. So he was signing and he was obviously ill. He was there with his wife. He passed away not long after. Um, there was the guy who played Gordon. There's the guy, Alan Murakow, who plays Mr. Allen, who, who runs Mr. Hooper's store. Um, Emil Degato, who was passed on. He played Luis. We met him. And, uh, I met Bob McGrath, and uh, I met, I talked to Bob about it. He was uh, really interested that I was a lawyer because his grandson was a lawyer, and I talked to him about this episode with Mr. Hooper, and you know he was saying how emotional it was and and whatnot. And as an aside, other people at that event, Anson Williams there, you know he was Potsy. Um, Peter Scolari, who was on Bosom Buddies, he's of course he's passed on also as well. I uh, got to talk to him about that show. I always loved that. Him, the show, that was a show with Tom Hanks. Told him I think the show jumped the shark when they ditched the whole, um, you know, uh, pretending they were in drag. I thought that that was always clever, and they got rid of it in the second season to kind of weaken the show. And um, Paula and Carol um, from the Magic Garden. And uh, if you did live in New York... You don't know who they are, but Magic Garden was a kid's show, um, iconic show in the 70s. Uh, they lived in a magic, and they, they, 
the whole episode was in a magic garden. There were like uh, laughing flowers called the Chuckle Patch, and it was like a uh, was a cat named Sherlock or whatever it was, and it was pretty cool to me because you know I watched that show and. They also went to my high school, Midwood High School, and I think uh, Carol was the original, um, the original uh, Sandy in the uh, musical Grease, back in the early seventies. But anyway, just because the plan sponsor is always on the hook, it's it's the plan sponsor's job. You know, in the when you talk about it, it's always the plan sponsor's job, and. That's just the nature of being a plant fiduciary. Um, you know, that's just because. Um, you know, plant sponsors, plant fiduciary, they're responsible for everything. Uh, you know, when you handle your own money, it's on you. You lose your own money, it's, it's tough luck. You're holding someone else's money, you have a higher standard. So, you know, if I'm, you know, losing money, if I, if I put in, you know, a couple bucks into Signature Bank... At seventy dollars a share on on a Friday, and on Monday, you know, on Sunday, the the, the federal government seized it, seized it, the FDIC seized it, and I'm out all that money. That's on me. But as a fiduciary, I have a higher standard of care when I'm handling somebody else's money. That's just the common sense of it. And so, you know, it, it's a, you're responsible for yourself. That's one thing. But when you know you're responsible for somebody else, it's quite the other. You know what you did as a what I what I did as a kid as a college student law school student that's 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 my business but when you have kids and you have a wife and all that stuff you have obviously much more responsibilities in life and um, you know plan sponsors have these responsibilities plan fiduciary which you know could be included you know includes acting solely in the interest of a plan participants or beneficiaries uh, with the exclusive purpose of providing benefits to them. So you're, you know, you can't go into business for yourself. You have to do what's in the best interest of plan participants. You also have to carry out the duty, the duties prudently. Follow the plan documents, unless they're inconsistent with ERISA and the Internal Revenue Code. Diversifying plan investments and paying only reasonable plan expenses. It's a lot of work. Uh, that's why people who push pooled employer plans. That's where you got to focus. Because that's a lot of work. Uh, obviously, the true cost of plan administration is on a plan sponsor. Um, you know, obviously, in the fee disclosure world uh, we live in, most of my career, we didn't have fee disclosure. Still to this day, you know, 25 years in the business, you know, I operated 14 years without fee disclosure, 11 years with it. I like fee disclosure. Um, why do I like fee disclosure? Because it was an anomaly when a plan sponsor has a fiduciary responsibility only paying reasonable plan expenses, and then you know their plan providers didn't have to tell them how much they were making off the plan. So how could a plan sponsor, unless they hired like some kind of forensic accountant, how could they figure out how much they were actually paying in plan expenses? To me, that was an anomaly. And, you know, people like me, people like James Holland, quite a few other plan providers that, you know, practice fee, full fee disclosure, we were ahead of the curve. And shame on the apologists in the industry that were against it. 
And, you know, I think most of those guys are out. Uh, again, there was a guy who is, I forget the name of the group, but anytime you're critical of the business and you're pushing for fee disclosure, you're considered like an enemy combatant of the industry. And that's how we were treated because we spoke the truth. And, you know, I felt, I feel like to, the, to, to this day that, um, you know, you have to tell people how much you're making off of them. You know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an attorney. I have to do that. Um, you know, I can't hide the ball on fees. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't do that. And it was just such a weird part of that business where, you know, uh, a producing TPA or any TPA was getting fee disclosure payments and didn't have to disclose it to the client. And, you know, gave the idea that they were paying one set of expenses when, quite honestly, you had the, fee, you had the uh, revenue sharing and they were making uh, so much more. So, you know, fee disclosure was really an eye opener. I think it certainly has helped down. It certainly helped with, um, you know, I, I think it certainly helped with fees. I think that uh, fees have compressed in this business. They're more competitive. Uh, when you know what everybody else is making, it just makes everybody um, more competitive. And um, obviously. In my opinion, changes in technology have made things easier. I will always say I've been in this business 25 years. I haven't changed the price of my plain documents at all. What I charged in 1998, I still charge to today. Why? Because changes in technology have made it that much cheaper to me for me to produce documents. Uh, in the old days, you used to use this kind of convoluted... Uh, software interface that worked with Word that changed the formatting, and if you had to change the plan document, it was, was, was silly, and you know you had to print out the documents and bind them and all that stuff. And now everything's done through PDF. Um, no need to mail documents out anymore, so that's cheaper. The time uh, expense—it's just that much quicker for me to knock out a plain document. So that's why I don't change charge my fees. But you know, I think that. Again, fee disclosure has been a great breakthrough the plan sponsor who wants to handle their fiduciary duty diligently. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's an amazing uh, thing for this business. And uh, it just means that a plan sponsor now is more has to be more vigilant. Get those fee disclosure forms. They can't just put it in the back of the drawer or throw it out in the garbage like they do with the bank's privacy statement, privacy notice statement and whatnot. So... Uh, plan sponsors, you know, really have to gauge how uh, fees are being charged and whether they're reasonable or not. Of course, mistakes being made by a plan provider are still going to rest on the plan sponsor. Um, you hear so many sob stories with plan sponsors. I didn't know. I didn't know. The plan provider screwed up. And I'm on the hook for these penalties, or I have to fix this and whatnot. Um, you know, I always talk about a law firm client. Years ago, uh, they were a client of my former TPA. They came to me. I said, uh, you know, all of a sudden now we change providers, we change TPAs. Uh, looks like um, a top-heavy test was done incorrectly. And the top-heavy test was done incorrectly because one of the name partners in the firm um, his daughter and wife were not listed as key employees. 
So needless to say, uh, new TPA who did a better job with compliance, redid it, said, you know, listen, you owe eight grand for top heavy. And, um, you know, that's, that's what happens. And ultimately, yeah, you can always go after the plant provider for screwing up for negligence, but ultimately it's the plant sponsor's duty to fix it. So that eight grand, uh, I, uh, let's just say I got about 3000 bucks back from the former TPA to fix this mess and, uh, it was done. Uh, but, uh, you know, ultimately, yeah, you could sue people for negligence and all that stuff or try to shake them down to fix the mess. But ultimately, it's the plan sponsors, um, you know, call and need to fix things. And uh, last but not least, plan documents have to be updated. Um, I always joked uh, in years past, you know, Bernie Core was my professor for... Uh, Civil procedure and bankruptcy, um, and he said it best. He said it. Uh, he used to joke that uh, every few years, the bankruptcy code has to be updated to keep bankruptcy lawyers in business. So that's how I always talk about plain documents. We need ERISA attorneys to make money. Plain documents have to be updated every six years by the IRS. That we're on a cycle, which is great. Uh, I want to point out that uh, Bernie Core was my favorite professor that I ever took a class with. Everybody knows that uh, I was good friends with Professor Raskin, who is now a congressman in Maryland. Uh, I don't agree with him about 75% of the time, but I love him. And um, Bernie Kaur, I, I took, I, I know I took at least two classes. It might have been a third one. Um, he passed away. I found out he just passed away in November. Uh, that's, that's that's your law school for you. A guy passes away in November, and now they're going to do a memorial service for him in March. But that's American University of Washington College of Law for you. Um, he retired, and apparently he had some heart issues and suffering for a while. Great guy. Loved him to death. Um, and I think he was a, he was a great professor. Uh, in a sea of, you know... My my feeling about law school was I felt like I sold the bill the good sold the bill bill of goods to attend that school. They didn't deliver, and Bernie Core was one of those few honest people in that sea of nonsense. You know, I remember uh, we had a crim law professor. Oh, grades don't matter. This this and that, and of course he only hired his uh, his uh, aides. Uh, based on grades. So, you know, he was, he was a fraud. Bernie Kaur was honest with us when we took uh, civil procedure. He said, you know what, a lot of you guys are going to get C pluses. That's the way the curve works. And it doesn't really mean as much as you think it does. And he was honest. And um, I, I, I look fondly on him, and uh, I will look fondly on him until the days I forget about him. Uh, which I hope doesn't happen, but you never know with these days with dementia and all that stuff. But plain documents have to be updated every six years, and the Internal Revenue Code requires it. And I have one client, TPA, that I knock out the documents for every six years. So last July, or actually it was actually in June, July was the deadline, in June I was knocking out 25 documents for them. And... Still haven't been paid on like about five of them because he hasn't been paid. 
and he has these clients, I don't want to pay for it. I don't, I don't think I should pay for it. Or they have an advisor that says, other people give it away for free. Um, and, you know, a plan sponsor has to realize that it's on them, that they need to update their plan documents. IRS requires it. Somebody's got to make a buck on it. It's not as easy as people think it is. I used to get all the heat. Uh, you know, ancillary amendments have to be done every now and then. And when I had to do ancillary amendments, my bosses in the TPA, all they saw were dollar signs. That was great for them. They saw dollar signs. But for me, it wasn't easy because I had to send out the letters. Um, I had to get the I had to get lists of our clients because there wasn't one main list of all our clients. Uh, I had to deal with the the fall, you know, the nonsense dealing with it, dealing with the clients that didn't want to pay. And, you know, they would tell me, oh, all you're doing is a mail merge document, which yeah, was kind of accurate. But I still, we had to make money on it. It was still work. And then you had to negotiate with, you know, 5 10% of your clients. And when you have 750 clients, that's a lot of time wasted to negotiate. And uh, it was just, uh, it, was, it was nonsense. And I think in those days we charged 475 or whatever it is. I still only charge 350 for an amendment on my own practice, but that's neither here nor there. And of course, um, you know, the problem is, is plan sponsors got to keep records of all their plan documents. One of the biggest problems that I have with plan documents is the IRS takes the position that if you don't have a copy of a plan document, it was never done. So if you're missing an amendment, you're missing a document, IRS treats it as if it was never done. And, you know, caught on an audit, that's costly. Um, going through a VCP program to correct missed amendments and documents and all that, that's costly too. So uh, it's important for the plan sponsor to have that responsibility of having all plan documents and having a record of it. So that's that, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of that 4K podcast. Tune in next week for another episode, and uh, go to that 4 for further information on all our events. Thank you.